0: Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. We believe also that we are the Accidental Gods, you and me. We didn't plan to be the ones to hold the future of all life in our hands, but here we are, at a place where one single species, ours, has the capacity to wipe out most, if not all, of the life on this planet. The routes to Armageddon seem to be increasing all the time, but they all have one thing in common, they are predicated on our absolute disconnection from the web of life. It is a central tenet of this podcast that for most of our evolutionary history, humanity has existed as an integral part of this web, and that we were aware of our connectedness. Quite how we lost this is open to question, and I doubt if we'll ever find concrete answers. Certainly, I don't think speculation is worth a lot of emotional or intellectual bandwidth, because what really matters, what can and I think should, take up most of our energy in whatever time we have left, is finding ways to heal that rift, to reconnect us to the living web so that we can ask of it, what do you want of me? And respond to the answers in real time. If you've listened to this podcast much, you have heard me say this once or twice before. If you're part of the wider Accidental Gods membership community, And come along to our monthly intention intensives, and you would be most welcome. Then you have heard me say it every single time that we meet. I genuinely believe that this is the single most important thing that any one of us can be doing at the moment. I think it's the only way we're going to get through. And that if we can achieve it, if we can move forward into connection within the world of the 21st century, we will have made a significant shift in the evolution of our consciousness, of our wisdom, the bit that the AI will never be able to emulate. But in all of this, finding ways forward, mapping ways forward, creating the whole accidental gods to move us forward, one of the things from which I have steered absolutely clear is the field of psychedelics. There are a lot of reasons for this, and we explore some of them in the podcast that we are about to hear, because I have finally found someone whose opinion I trust implicitly. Someone who has direct experience of the use of psychedelics in a number of fields, and whose integrity feels absolutely rock solid. Dr. Rosalind Watts is a clinical psychologist who was the former clinical lead of the psilocybin for depression trial at Imperial College in London. She also gave a groundbreaking and really inspiring TEDx talk back in 2017, in which she opened up the results of that first trial to her peers and to the rest of the world. In the time that's passed, though, she's come to qualify that early enthusiasm, and she recently wrote a Medium post in which she points out some of the pitfalls of that trial and opens up the concept that if we use psychedelics indiscriminately in a toxic culture, they are as likely to amplify the toxicity as they are to heal us and the world around us. Having realised this and experienced some of the harm that plant medicines can do if not held within a supportive framework, Roz has gone on to found Acer Integration, A 12-month online course with monthly modules built around connections to and with trees, designed explicitly to create the supportive culture people need to integrate their experiences. So if you're expecting us to talk about all the multicoloured wonders of psychedelics, then forget it, because this is not what the podcast is about. It's about understanding the systemic nature of mental health and the crisis That surrounds us. It's about cultural experience and the ways plant spirits can act to amplify where we're at. It's a call to action, as well as a profoundly important health warning, as we approach the brink of yet another tipping point. So, people of the podcast, please do welcome Dr. Rosalind Watts of Acer Integration. Roz, Welcome to Accidental Guys Podcast. It is an absolute delight to see you this morning. How are you and where are you?
1: I am sitting in the countryside, uh, about an hour north of London, and I am feeling yeah, I'm feeling good this morning, Manda. Thank you. How are you doing?
0: Good. We have baby chicks, which, which offsets the fact that my pony has laminitis and I haven't gotten on top of it yet, which is <sighs> I'm a bad pony owner. It's very bad. Anyway. Way back in 2017, you did a TED Talk, which I watched at the time. It was very moving in many ways. It was a very impassioned plea for the, what I imagine as being slightly straight-laced members of the clinical psychiatric profession, clinical psychologists, to take psychedelics seriously as a potential part of their toolkit for treating depression. Move to the present day, and you've written a medium post that that qualifies that somewhat. So we're going to look at where we would be now. But first, we're going to see how did you come to be the person who gave that TED Talk in the first place. So tell us how you, why you, and what you felt at the time.
1: Um, well, I became a clinical psychologist. And I'd been working in the National Health Service for a, a long time and really loving working in the NHS, loving the teams of people I worked with, but f- feeling increasingly frustrated by the, the lack of the lack of interventions that were really able to help people. You know, very long waiting list, but all but that aside, um people living with with deep trauma, difficult social conditions and offering them a few sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy really to kind of change the way they were thinking about it is you know the classic analogy is like it's a sticking plaster on a wound and not um not enough so although the teams of people offering these treatments were so wonderful and well-intentioned and caring that the tools they have are not powerful enough so so, yeah, I, I, um, I actually went on maternity leave from, from the NHS and I was pretty exhausted from working very long days with seeing lots of people. Um, I was working in Tower Hamlets, which is a very socially deprived area of London. And, yeah, seeing many people in a day and feeling a bit overwhelmed by the need for, for healing and care and hope and, and the, the lack of ways of offering that. So, right. so then I went on maternity leave and I had a chance in maternity leave to actually do some reading because I'd been so tired in my NHS job that I would just come home from work and kind of collapse. But I actually found maternity leave quite kind of... Um, you know, it was, it was like a, a holiday. I was, you know, I was breastfeeding my little daughter, but I was still had a lot more time than I'd had before to, to explore new ideas and engage with the world beyond my own little world. And my very dear friend had had an ayahuasca experience a few years previously um, because she'd been struggling with anxiety and depression. And it had been a wonderful experience for her. And so I had that in the back of my mind of I really need to look a bit deeper into this And I'd been very wary Mm. of her going to Peru to drink ayahuasca before I understood more about it. But then when she had this wonderful experience, I'd kind of, it was on my very long to-do list of things to explore in more depth when I had a moment. So in my long nights of breastfeeding, I was Googling and finding things. And I found that there was a study taking place very close to where I lived, which was looking at psilocybin as a treatment for people suffering from depression. And I emailed them and said, you know, I'm on maternity leave, clinical psychologist, I've got some time, I can make some tea. And they said, well, look, we need a guide. So can you start tomorrow kind of thing? And... um,
0: What, What does a guide do? Tell us a little bit about what the guide function is.
1: So the guide is in the room with a participant for the whole day of a psychedelic therapy experience. You're there for the preparation phase and you're there during the whole day And you're really there to provide ongoing presence and care and absolute attention on that person. So even though they're lying all day with the headphones on, listening to the music, and they've got eye shades on, they're engaged in their own internal process. In some ways, they don't really know that you're there, but I think they can feel it because you are Right. Absolutely aware of, of you know how they seem to be doing. And if they need to go to the bathroom, you can help them and you can get them a drink of water if they need that. And you can hold their hand as well if they're going through something really challenging and they feel that they want some human
0: contact. So already I'm dragging us down a rabbit hole and diverting. We will come back to your process, but I'm curious to know what training, other than having a clinical psychology training, it seems to me with my relatively limited experience and understanding of plant medicines, that the energy in the surrounding area, not just the room, but if you're in a room and that's your containment box, shall we say, the capacity to ground, the capacity to hold an open heart space, the capacity to hold clear, strong attention without bringing our own stuff to it are all an integral part of the experience that the person will have. How were you prepared for the guiding?
1: I didn't receive training for that. At that point, it was an academic trial. Um, the therapeutic elements were, in a way, although the, the importance of having a safe a safe space and um, caring professionals by the, the side of the person having the experience, that was all understood. But I think it was a brain imaging study, you know, in a medical context. So these people are in an MRI, not during the psilocybin experience, but they had brain scans afterwards. So it was a very, the the, the whole kind of framing of the study was very medicalized. So, um, the therapeutic element was, um, and, and that more energetic type of framework that you're referring to, that's more common in a shamanic worldview, that hadn't really um come into that container. And so okay. the 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 importance was all around safety and presence. But I think the trip. I mean some of the previous people on the trial had received training from another university who had um been doing these trials as well and had developed some understanding of what was important for guides. Um, and I think training for these clinical trials is is getting more Um, comprehensive as we go but this was a few years ago now so it was it was quite minimal but I would say that my training in in my experience of being a guide was becoming a mother so it was right six months after having my daughter that I was in that room and I think that all the skills that I was learning at home or the natural instincts I was being flooded with at home around um kind of holding and you know not physically mm. but holding um that that process of containment where an infant will express its distress and you hold it with care and love and a kind of soothing silence and mm. don't you know that you can't make it better you can't stop the crying but you're there to hold it and, and in a way mirror it back to the person in a kind of compassionate or, or the, the infant in a compassionate way. It's I hear you, I'm right. here. So, right. and I think probably also the kind of the hormones of, um, you know, all the oxytocin and prolactin and all those things. Mm-hmm. They, they bring a softening. And as a clinical psychologist trained to do cognitive behavioral therapy, it's quite directive, but I was definitely in a much softer, more open space than I had been before. And I was more able, I think, to sit with sometimes many hours of, of distress being expressed and, right. and deep places of trauma and often actually people go back to an infantile place they they go back to experiences of being very young and very vulnerable right. so i think i think be, becoming a parent was was probably my training i don't think it's it's necessary but certainly if i hadn't been a parent and i'd been a the clinical psychologist i was before then i wouldn't have been a very good guide
0: interesting okay so let's move on a little bit because your daughter is eight now so that was eight years ago by the time you gave the TED talk you were the lead clinical psychologist on an evolution of that study so can you give us the edited highlights of what the TED talk said so basically the findings of your study and why you were so impassioned and inspiring when you gave the talk
1: so I actually I mean I was very impassioned and, and inspired, and in many ways I still am. And the 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 TED talk actually was before I became so then I became the clinical lead on the second trial, which was a bigger trial, a randomized control trial. But actually when I did that TEDx talk, I was still just a volunteer guide on the first, much smaller study. Um but but I I suppose it was that the level of passion that I had for it that but that meant I became the clinical lead on the second trial because it was a complete devotion of, you know, a a total devotion to this this way of working Um, and an absolute fascination with how it can be optimized and improved and made safer and made more appealing and more comfortable for people in any way because it is a very intense kind of intervention. It's extremely hard for people sometimes it's not it's often very very painful many hours of going through extremely challenging emotions but the the TEDx talk themes were around what I'd learned from people when I interviewed them after their experiences so in the first trial I did some qualitative research where six months after their experience I interviewed everybody about how psilocybin had affected their their depression how it had affected their lives and what had happened and i found some very very robust themes there which were the the main themes were about psilocybin therapy helping people accept emotions rather than avoid them i talked about those extremely difficult emotions people could face and whereas in normal life we often try numb emotions or avoid or distract And our culture is really one that helps us avoid and distract and push under the carpet or or numb those feelings because Mm. we don't have the containers to help us feel them safely with each other and learn from them yet. And the psilocybin experience was so overwhelming in terms of how powerful the emotions were for many people that people had almost no choice but to feel them, really feel for maybe the first time in a long time and feel it in the body. So acceptance of emotion was the first theme. The second was of going from disconnection to connection and that I would really describe as going from living in your head and your world being the size of your the prison of your mind and the ruminations going on to the size of your world being everything, an interconnected web of life that is, you know, it's kind of planet, you know, universal beyond even the planet Earth, this sense of zooming out so your world becomes bigger. Right. The third thing really was around the embodiment aspect. So, touching on it before with this acceptance of emotion rather than avoidance, but really the emotional roller coaster that people often went on was so visceral, and people were able to listen to their body often for the first time. Like, my stomach feels funny, I've got a tension in my chest, feeling almost right. like what we might think of as chakra points, feeling those tensions in places. And this is for people that haven't really been in contact with their bodily experience for so long because they've been in so much distress. So I would say right. my kind of acronym for it is ACE, accept, connect, embody. And that really describes for me, like what I my summary from, from hearing those experiences of those people, psilocybin experience helped them accept, connect, and embody, as opposed to the opposite, which is avoid, being disconnected and living in your head and being very much yeah living in a kind of cognitive world rather than embodied sensory experience
0: which is the defining feature of our current culture so what these people are doing are expressing or let me rephrase that it feels to me as if what's happening is that they are reaching the boundaries of what the culture is doing to us and finding that it's completely not working. And then the, what the psilocybin did was to help to reset them back into something that's actually living. Yes, that's a lovely summary. But then then we get to, they're still inhabiting a culture that's broken, that wants people to be disconnected, disembodied, and not accepting. It wants people to be locked in their heads and incapable of of actually connecting to the wider web. Because if we did, or at the point when we do, inhabiting modern culture becomes impossible. Hmm. So how was their long longer-term experience? Because he went six months afterwards. By the scale of the, the few clinical trials that I've read, that's quite a long-term follow-up. A lot of, particularly for drugs, seem to, you know, we'll go a week and then we'll decide it was fine. I'm sure it's better these days. But um, how, what happened after a year, two years, three years?
1: Mm, such an important, important question. So, yes, the trials don't measure long term, they have quite short periods of time. They look at like three months post the final, you know, after the session, they look at three months. But th- the interview I did was six months afterwards. So, I was starting mm. to see what the studies weren't seeing so much, which is the depression coming back so in the official reports that we see of psychedelic trials you often see these amazing outcomes because the the follow-up times are shorter but then in longer-term research looking at qualitative outcomes where you interview people rather than ask them to fill in a questionnaire so you capture more nuance and also it's longer it's further down the line and you start to get a fuller story which is that for nearly all of the people in that first trial there were 20 people for nearly all of them when i interviewed them they were saying yeah my depression is coming back now but it was still wonderful but then a year down the line because i've been working with many of them since then in developing community integration pro- programs to help people maintain the connectedness that they felt in the months afterwards or at least some of it um, and to, and for them to meet each other and connect with each other and support each other and you know, years down the line, it's it's really this observation that the idea that psychedelics are a quick fix or a one session thing, or that they reset your brain. I don't believe that to be true. It doesn't tally with everything I've seen over the last seven, eight years. And it's much right. more like it's a sl- it's an opening. It's a long, slow, deep journey to inside ourselves understanding more about our internal worlds our external worlds opening up and as you say when you open up and then you go back to a toxic culture as we as the one we live in it's um the the the, the opening shuts down very quickly so people did become depressed again and so that brings on so the the acronym for what the psilocybin session did was ace except connecting body and the work I've been doing now brings in an R to make it Acer, which is a type of tree. And the R stands for restore. And that is about, it's like, okay, you've had the acceptance, the connection, the embodiment. Great. You've had a psychedelic session. You feel quite open. Things are feeling full of possibility. You feel freedom. Your world has expanded. And then... We have to use that time rather than just leaving people to go back to a toxic culture. We, leave, we use that window of opportunity to say, now is the time to restore yourself back to the web of life, the rhythms of nature, the patterns of nature, which is interconnectedness. And to say... If you just do this on your own, you will probably find that the benefits fall away and your life doesn't change. In a year, we'll talk to you and you'll say it was wonderful, but nothing really changed. I'm still depressed. I still don't feel quite right in my job, or things still aren't working. But if you say you have this window of opportunity now, and things have shifted for you, you feel more open. This is the time to really come into community with other people. Think about the world you want to create for yourself and around you and and kind of come out of the old way and into the new way, really, which I think you probably know what I mean when I say that, but I don't know whether everybody does, but it's, it's coming out of that very linear, individualistic, competitive, stress-filled, fast-paced life into something that allows slowness, circularity, winters as well as summers. It's the circle instead of the kind of straight line or the the triangle it's cooperation and community and care so it's coming into the more I suppose it's, it's kind of coming into the anima rather than the animus it's starting to balance our, our way of being in a more balanced whole way and I think um, it's interesting that the clinical trials are in this very at the moment they're in this very medical Um, world and and frame which is much more of the old way which is much more around you know academia and um, pharma companies and profits and shareholders Mm. and very much that kind of older way and so it's we need to we need to bring balance to this work by saying okay you you might take a you you might have a psychedelic experience in that medical context or in any context but then afterwards we need to bring in the community, the restoring to a slower rhythm and using the potential of psychedelic work and insights to help people change the communities that they live in and the way they live. So that those benefits can be not just longer term for them, but also shared with each other and to change the ecosystem right. that we live in.
0: So you get a ripple effect out into the whole community. This is this is beautiful. And I would really like to delve into your Acer program in depth in a bit, but I want to rewind a little bit, or at least to explore more deeply the experiences that people have in a clinical psychological setting with a medicine plant, because to me, this is bringing opposing polarities of potential into the same room in a way. And I'm thinking, I think a lot of things. I'm years ago, like in the last millennium, I Oh, I had a week-long ayahuasca retreat. And it absolutely, totally, I cried for two days in ways that I haven't cried ever, I don't think. And I n- knew, I, w- I wouldn't have done it. I'm not really keen on on things impinging on my head that are not me. Um, but my guides were insistent. And, and what they said is, it will break the concrete around your heart. And they were absolutely right, it did. But I also know that if I hadn't been doing it within a shamanic context. And if I hadn't done a huge amount of work afterwards, that concrete would have reformed. And then I wonder, I don't know, because I haven't got a control of me, would I have wanted to go and do it again? Because even way back then, and this was in the days before people could pronounce ayahuasca, they certainly weren't, it wasn't a a cool cult thing to do. There were people who were were just coming along because it was the new kid on the block, psychedelic-wise, They wanted another experience. The the poor young man who was running it, uh, who had, you know, he was 23, I think. He'd apprenticed at the age of 12 to his uncle. And two years of his apprenticeship were spent alone in the jungle. I, I wouldn't survive, I don't think, 20 minutes alone in the jungle, but he was out there learning with the plants. And so for him, this was a sacred experience. And he had Western white people turning up, you know, as if it was another cocktail to try. And so my question, First question is whether the people who are living in tower Hamlets so are given what for us in the UK is probably our strongest psychedelic certainly the one person that I know that I would trust in the shamanic field who works with medicine plants psilocybin is a long way down the list it's from their perspective it's the least forgiving so we're slamming them with a medicine teacher which takes no shit basically it's it's quite clean cut we're opening them we're going through the accept connect in body experience they're understanding that there is a web of life of which they are a part and then we're putting them back into a place where it's really hard to hold that and my expectation is that the depression afterwards is going to be a lot worse because you know there's a potential for something else the original depression is my world is not working the second depression is my world is not working and somewhere there's a window and I could climb out of it if I knew how. Do they want to come back and do the psilocybin again in the hope that they'll get to the window again? What, what happens? Mm.
1: Yeah, very, very important reflection. And absolutely in the qualitative um, research that, that those interviews with people, I remember somebody describing how it was like psilocybin turned on the lights in a dark house. And he saw his life and he saw everything. And then the lights went out again and how much harder it was to be in that darkness having seen than having not seen before. So I think there is that we it's so essential that we bring into our understanding that if we can't really incorporate psychedelics into that medicalized model where you have a treatment and it cures and, a physical problem and then you're done and it's fixed and you can just be left. Right. It's the, the aftercare, the support afterwards is so essential The education and, and the change in our community. So that really, if, if we, if we put psychedelics into a, a toxic system, it will end up amplifying the toxicity and imbalances. And we are seeing that in many ways, which also happy to discuss, um, but we, yes, we really need to, to change we need to change the structures in the system alongside bringing psychedelics in so that rather than amplifying these problems, psychedelics can actually start to be used as tools to catalyze and magnify the healing processes that we're already starting to initiate. So psychedelics give us a message and they, they give us a message around um. All that opening up and allowing the emotion, accepting the emotion, all of that embodiment of what the message is comes back to the same message really, which is it helps people connect to themselves with other people and the world around them. It helps people develop this sense of, of connection, understanding where their pain has come from, understanding the imbalances in, the, in their own world and the world around them and seeing those in different ways. And so it's i think i can't remember who it was that said you know when you get the message hang up the phone i feel hmm. the message with psychedelics the message is so clear that you know it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society that that just really comes into its own when we when we look at how so many individuals are pathologized in so many different ways for having some problem or diagnosis. And yes, sure, there will be biological factors and there will be a certain amount of things that would probably happen even in a really healthy, connected, caring community. I I can't really answer that. I can't be sure either way, but I know that so much of our suffering and the pathology in inverted commas that gets put on individuals is because the root of that the root of that is around the way we live and how completely Mm. disconnected we are so I think that really to to bring to bring psychedelics in to a culture where there is safety will will be safe but to bring them into a culture where there isn't safety, where there isn't a support network for people, there isn't a a healthcare system that's even really able to function that well. But even beyond that, so much of our suffering is social, it's relational, it's not it's not about, you know, yeah. the medical system. We go to our GPs with our depression, our loneliness, but actually these are issues that are around the community structures that have been dissolved and the fact that we don't have access to a smallish, caring, connected group of people to walk through life with and to help us and us to help them and be reciprocal with. And without that kind of communitas and relational, that, that love in our lives, you know, love from, from many sources of people we trust, it's no wonder we are suffering so much and we, we simply can't expect psychedelics to to sort that out on their own. We need to support out the container first.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. Yes, yet another indication of why we need to move back to a tribal structure or forward to a tribal structure that works but within a technocratic society somehow. I haven't figured out what that looks like. But I would really like to unpick some of the amplifying of toxicity because it does seem as if... Big Pharma has got into this and there's a big move towards deregulating psychedelics. And I am i looked a little bit into the history of regulation in the first place. And it feels like we're veering on the edge of conspiracy theory when I say this, so I'm not sure, but I have listened to a number of, I think YouTube, I can't actually remember where they were, people saying that the reason LSD was made Into a class A drug. The reason class A drugs were created is that at the time of the Vietnam War, large numbers of young people who might otherwise have been drafted were having this sense of accepting, connecting, embodying, and were building communities. And those communities were saying, you know, kind of peace man, hey, let's make love not war. And and the American system needed them to be herded off to war, so they just banned everything that might suggest peace was a good idea. Fast forward to 2023 and the pharmaceutical companies seem to think that creating technological psilocybin so that you can give it to everybody and they can make money out of it and people will want to take it again and again and again is a good idea. So two things on that. I want to come back to why they might be doing that and Camilla Moreno's theory on that. But let's talk about the amplifying of toxicity because they're obviously not afraid that peace will break out and they have no problem with the fact that toxicity will be amplified and we are in a much more toxic world than the 60s and the Vietnam era. How is this happening? And have you a concept of why it's happening and what we could do to make things less damaging?
1: I think that I feel that we're at the the end of, we're in the kind of... Um, it's like as as the structures that we've been living in are coming to the end it's the system is gripping on tightly we're at the kind of peak now where right those forces of um huge growth the last attempts to i mean it's it's a kind of it's an interesting moment where we see This, for example, in the UK, this this energy crisis with people not being able to afford to eat and also be warm in the winter. So it's extreme. um, These bills that are crippling so many people at the same time as those the the bosses getting huge, huge bonuses and huge profits.
0: Obscene. We really see the
1: psychopathy inherent in the system that we live in it's psychopathic is probably the only word to describe it it's it's it runs on on its own rules that have nothing to do with the well-being of people or the planet or the planet and so as that extremely psychopathic system is becoming we more and more people are becoming aware of why it needs to change and it is it's crumbling anyway i f- believe and trust
0: we hope yes we hope <laughs>
1: I see I see what we see in psychedelics as as a kind of symptom of when I almost imagine it on a graph I imagine that system kind of going up and up and up and up and up and then the inevitable decline of it and the beginning of a new line which you know is the new way of being which is more local and more communal and more focused on sharing and we we're, we're going to have to do those things I think this peak kind of corporate dominator industrial profit laden completely psychopathic system psychedelics are coming in just at the time when when we're seeing that that peak and so we're seeing they're being incorporated into that system which is Mm. about maximizing profits and about patenting and competition and lack of reciprocity with people that have been carrying these medicines for thousands of years Mm. disenfranchisement of those it's um the psychopathic system is actually entering into psychedelics and they're they're amplifying that so which is a great shame and i think we also see that the people who are drawn to this work there is this kind of healing impulse to be doing this work because there's so much trauma because of the psychopathic system has caused so much hurt and damage to everybody and to some groups so much more than others there is this widespread intention of of healing Many people come in and want to do this work. And so I suppose there is, um, it's a quite chaotic field in that you have, um, I categorize it because I like using nature analogies as bamboo and kudzu. Bamboo is um, a plant that grows very quickly without strong roots and is thus flimsy. And I think you do have in some areas of the psychedelic field, um, those without the long lineage in the work or understanding or apprenticeship doing the work in ways that they may not fully understand what they're doing and so in that way it's problematic and it's also liable to all the kind of yeah just kind of um frailties you get when you divorce one element of the work i.e. one particular chemical compound from the 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 web the whole. it's like in nature we have medicines but then when you isolate one and develop it into a medicine you're cutting it off from the whole, so it becomes you know then it causes more side effects so we're seeing that you know this kind of so for me the bamboo world is the kind of more academic more medical corporate world where shareholder profits a prioritize. And it means that there might not be enough care, might not be enough therapy, might not be enough support for the infrastructure afterwards, community care for people. So there may be some clinical trial companies who profit a lot of, make a lot of money out of giving people psychedelics, and then they don't invest any of those profits in helping develop aftercare structures in the community. So then it, then it lies on the, the heads of amazing people in the community who are doing this work but aren't funded at all to hold the container hold the safety net where it really should be the responsibility of the 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 clinical trial companies that are making profits so so and there's a huge variety some of them are much more open to doing that than others but so that to me is like the bamboo problem it's this fast-growing profit, growth, not enough care for the infrastructure and the community. Right. And that makes it vulnerable.
0: And if, and if we stick with that as a metaphor, it can drown out everything else because bamboo can just take over an area and and nothing else grows at all. So, okay.
1: Yes. Monopolies and patenting. And that's where you mm. get onto the kudzu, which is a slightly different category. And kudzu is a plant that is like an ivy vine that just takes over everything. So it can cover a car in the space of a day. scary. And that for me, represents the other side of the kind of toxicity, which is um, in the maybe more underground world, you have lots of people that want to be shamans or healers without much training or experience, messiah complexes goddess complexes you know big egos wanting to be the ones that bring the healing and thinking that they can do it after just a few days of training or no training and I mean I I'm one to talk because as I've said I was sitting in that room with people without having done specialist psychedelic therapy training but I was a clinical psychologist which meant that I'd been vetted by many people over many years and there is something about the bamboo world for all of its problems, that at least it does work with people who have been trained and have lots of experience. So doctors and psychologists, sometimes they might break boundaries and sometimes there may be issues with them, sometimes, of course, but overall, it's quite a safe population of people to work with because they've had to go through so much training. And when you go into the more unregulated underground world, with all these wannabe shamans, some of them are really quite dangerous mm-hmm. and do a lot of harm. So bamboo and kudzu, both ends of the spectrum, both can become toxic and problematic. And I think we're seeing a lot of that.
0: Yeah, you see it in the shamanic world without without the plant medicines in, and then you add in plant medicines. And as I said, that of all the people I know who work with plant medicines in a shamanic way in the UK, I can think of one if I ever... My guides ever said it was time to do anything again. I have one person I could go to and the rest are frankly dangerous. On the topic of that, way back in 2020, al Lade was on the podcast and he was completely inspiring then and talking very much along the lines that you're talking about the need for building communities of trust and of being and belonging. And now he's written a paper with René Sousa in Double Blind about the question, the title of the paper is why the psychedelic renaissance, and that's in inverted commas, is just colonialism by another name. And one of the highlights of the whole paper is a quote which says, our engagement with pretty much anything, things, plants, people, relations, you name it, is through consumption and commodification of the other, guided by perceived self-interest, which is exactly what you have just been saying. They go on to say, You may be wondering why this historical and sociological, somewhat moralising crash course is part of an article on psychedelic renaissance, because they've been talking about the huge problems of contemporary society, and anyone listening, if you want it put really cleanly and succinctly, I have linked to this in the show notes, and they say that's great. We, as authors, are simply wondering why conversations about topics such as ecocide, genocide, colonialism, imperialism, indigenous rights, and rights of non-human beings so rarely, if ever, are a part of the conversation about the psychedelic renaissance. And that seems to me to come back to something quite key. Because in the shamanic world, if anyone that I was working with was interested in working with a plant teacher, the very first thing we would do would be to go to the plant teacher and ask for their opinion on this. Not, you know, even before you begin to to ingest, take, smoke, drink, whatever, you would journey to the spirit of that plant, probably over many times over a long period of time, and get to know it first, ask its opinion, and it would be an integral part of something much wider. And what I'm hearing from you is that we're getting a medicalization, we're getting synthetic psilocybin, it's not even go and pick a mushroom, it's let's take a tablet that we believe has some of the key ingredients and and thereby losing. I would imagine the connection to the actual teacher because we didn't understand that connection existed in the first place. Is there anyone, even in the bamboo world or in the healthy, we need to find a plant that's healthy, an ash tree or an oak tree or something or an Acer, that is connecting to the actual spirit of the plants and thereby connecting to the wider systemic issues and in the end, connecting to the web of life and finding out, is this part of my note of being? Is it part of what I am here to do in, in the web? Or is it simply being commercialized and turned into a route for professional progression in whatever profession we're talking about?
1: Uh, so I think two things to say with that. The first is that um, it was kind of amazing as well that even though the psilocybin we were using in the trials was synthetic that people still had incredibly powerful experiences of connecting to the web of life and still and I remember a story about Maria Sabina who was the was the the medicine woman to provide mushrooms to the west and that later leading to them being synthesized in a lab and actually if we've got time I'll tell you the story of her because it absolutely in a way captures everything that we're talking about. Um, But if we have time, but yeah, so she, when she sent them to the West or when they were kind of taken from her to be given to the West by a banker from America, and then it was put in Life magazine and she ended up being vilified by her village. It was a very sad story of what happens when- Tell us
0: a little bit about this. We haven't got long so edit the highlights, but but please, this sounds- Tragically horrible. I I also want to ask: We have psilocybin in the UK. People have been taking mushrooms for millennia. Why did we need to go somewhere else?
1: Well, yeah. But anyway,
0: tell us her story.
1: So her story is that she was a medicine woman in Mexico in the Mazatec healing tradition. She was long one of a long line of Mazatec healers using mushrooms, and had been doing these Velada nighttime healing sessions for pretty much all of her life. She started when she was very young. There was a Russian pediatrician called Valentina. Who married a banker called Gordon Wasson? He was American, and on their honeymoon they went and started. She loved mushrooms; she was a mycophile, culinary mushrooms. She kind of got him into mushrooms. He then found out about Maria Sabina's Mazatec mushroom velada healing ceremonies, and either him or him and Valentina went to have a session at Velada. Um, They witnessed Maria Sabino singing her songs and providing this amazing space for people to engage with this mushroom, communing with the mushrooms. And they thought it was so amazing, or Gordon did, that he then kind of went back with Life magazine, did a kind of five-page spread, him on the cover holding the mushrooms.
0: Of course, straight white man.
1: Of course. And then they... Then they later got sent to Albert Hoffman, who synthesized psilocybin from these mushrooms and created synthetic psilocybin. And the two things that are interesting about this story linked to what you were saying, the first is that, yes, um, Maria, when she was later given the synthesized capsule of psilocybin, tried it and said, yes, the spirit is in it. The little children are speaking to me. So she... All the wow. mushrooms as little children that spoke to her. And when she tried the synthesized capsule, she said the little children are here. So she actually endorsed what I saw or she, the experiences I had observing people going through synthetic psilocybin therapy very much validated and it gave extra evidence to what she had said and that people okay. really had some profound spiritual experiences and still seemed like they were communing with the mushroom. And actually on one clinical trial, not the one I was working on, um, with synthetic psilocybin. One of the participants actually got the message from the synthetic psilocybin that the way the company was was working and operating as a for-profit company and giving synthetic psilocybin was problematic, and and they were perpetuating harm. And there was a message from the synthetic psilocybin wow that this company needed to be brought back into the rhythms of life
0: have they changed have they changed their practices oh yeah, yeah. so they listened to if it said yes this is great here's how to make another hundred million they'd have listened but if it says you're doing this all wrong you need to change it they're not going to listen at all
1: yeah I'm sure well, I mean they're you know beholden to shareholder profits and so I'm sure mm. that they wouldn't but but the but the other thing that's interesting is that um Maria Sabina eventually lost everything because this healing modality, this ancient healing tool had been extracted from her without her expressed consent. And then their village became overrun with uh, white people, tourists. tourists taking psychedelics and the, her village disowned her mm. and it really wrecked that healing tradition. Classic. So, and we see this kind of pattern where companies developing these, these tools don't then support the communities. The, who have carried them for so long? They'll take the benefits and mm. and, and not protect these indigenous communities. So that's yeah. Totally. But there was a second part of what I was going to say linked. To, would you remind me of the question again? The one before around the synthetic psilocybin.
0: Uh, asking, would you? Well, it was more. I was wondering, was there any effort to connect to the plant spirits by the yes. people running the trial?
1: Yes, so in terms of, in terms of that sense of plant spirits, there hasn't been in mainstream clinical trials uh, and yet a sense that those perspectives would be I from what I've seen, I don't think those perspectives would be consulted or respected.:
0: Right. Although you did put me in touch with Simon Ruffle, who sounds like he's definitely on the route to that. We're going to talk next week. a pre-podcast talk.:
1: Yes. So I think there are definitely people who are starting to bring those perspectives in. So I think in the past it hasn't been integrated, but hopefully now it will start and Simon Ruffle is a good example of that with his work looking at ayahuasca in an indigenous community and understanding the messages from the the people that he is speaking with and how those can then get fed back to. The world of science and the the medical model. So I think there are certain people who are bridging those worlds. So he's a psychiatrist, but he's working with ayahuasca in an indigenous context. So certain people are bringing those worlds together now and and synthesizing these different worldviews. But I think that it's still something that there will be so many people in the underground world or the shamanic world or the ceremonial world who hold the really amazing direct experience of communing with plants. So there are the bridge people who can mm. translate between the two worlds and carry ideas from one to the other. Yeah. And then there are those people within our tradition who are directly communing with plants and with trees. And, and also, I think many of them doing um, ceremonial work with plant medicines. And they are sources of incredible wisdom, but because their work is underground, their voices, Mm. it's difficult to uphold their voices and give them a platform because they wouldn't be able to talk about the psychedelic work they're doing because it's not legal. So I think that as we start to think about community building and creating infrastructure around psychedelics, especially after people have had psychedelics, those voices of people who have this direct experience that many of us in the west don't have because we're in a more rational cognitive medicalized training and we haven't yet undone that enough to be able to to really listen to the web of life when it speaks um that we will need those voices too we need elders right we need the elders so right. so yeah
0: hold that thought i want to go down that route in a second with your acer work but just before that i listened to an episode of the Hive podcast with Natalie Nahai talking to Camila Marina, who's an extraordinary young woman with a lot of very interesting ideas. And they got onto the topic of psychedelics and it's deregulation and the pharmaceutical companies getting onto it. And to paraphrase, Natalie asked, why? Why is it suddenly? Why are we having this psychedelic renaissance, if that's what we want to call it? And Camila's theory was, if you're going to herd people into the metaverse, you need to get them used to multiple different realities first so that they'll accept it. So basically we're going to feed you all mushrooms and then we're going to sit you in concrete boxes with VR headsets on and you're never going to move again. And then we can farm you for whatever it is we want. Somebody else, that I saw a meme on Facebook the other day going, the AI making the poetry and the art while the people do all the really menial and unpleasant tasks was not the future that I was heading for, uh, which is uh, feeds into this. It's I don't know how much that's a conspiracy theory and how much it's a valid way of looking at things. And just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. So conspiracy theories can sometimes be right. But this idea that psychedelics are suddenly okay because people with vast amounts of money want us to have at least more flexibility and they possibly don't understand that building community could be an integral part of this, and the community is not built on VR. But I wonder, is that something that has impinged on your awareness at all, or is that just way out in left field?
1: It doesn't surprise me. It's not something that it has been in my field of awareness. It doesn't surprise me because psychedelics are just amplifiers. They're just tools and they can be used in any context. So yes, they can be used by by cults. They can be used by far-right groups. They're not inherently benign. Right. They are amplifying. So I think that, um, yes, there are many ways they could be used in all sorts of problematic ways, and it is quite scary. However, I had a really interesting conversation yesterday with a friend of mine who works in, in AI and futurism and he was saying that maybe the gift of ai is that we all realize how frightening it is so that we all have to stop using <laughs> screens altogether that we are we realize how you know how problematic it is and we, we get back to nature in a big way because we we realize that this dystopian future is happening and we just simply can't allow it so i think that there will be some wow
0: I- that would be an interesting route if it works i think it might be too late do you not think getting people off their screens
1: well I mean, you know, I see in my daughter her screen addiction and I have obviously and a screen addiction eight. too. And she's eight. But I also am really passionate and hopeful about a new chapter just being born that is about communities, local communities, re-finding each other and the joy hmm. of sitting around a fire and telling a story with people who's, who we can hug and be with is always going to be deeper than a dopamine hit from a screen. We can yes. we can come out of those addictions and we can come back to the much deeper joy. Because it, it build the
0: serotonin mesh instead of the dopamine spikes. Yes. Absolutely. And so but even so you and I wouldn't be talking without screens and technology. And and I'm loving this. So I think it's a question of finding how can we use it in ways that are are healing and build the meshes rather than ways that are just simply flooding our brains with transient dopamine hits
1: absolutely and there will always be a few you know interesting people let's call them interesting to be euphemistic who want to develop all sorts of um, extremely well all sorts of ideas that are not in line with the well-being of the web of all of us and they they can do their thing, but we still have the power of choice, and so we can choose okay. to not join the metaverse. We can instead choose to start a, um, a a communal garden in our community and invite our neighbors to come down and plant some potatoes with us. so we can right. we can just say no to it yes, and I think we can say no to well, If we don't give our attention, our resources, our time, our money to funding the kind of use of psychedelics that is more um, bent on outcomes we do not wish to see, we can be part of creating an infrastructure that is guiding um, the incorporation of psychedelics into our society in a way that is for the healing and wholeness of our society. We, We guide the way it comes in. We still have the power to do that and it's not too late
0: even though the five wealthiest people on the planet have more capital than the rest of us put together. But let's let that one go, because you're right. I want to go back to one last quote from Alner Lada and the double blind paper, and then we can move into Acer from this. So they say, a responsible and accountable engagement with sacred plants and medicines is not about self-realization self-aggrandization, self-creation, self-expression, self-validation, or anything else that may be the devotional goal of Western well-being. It is more about getting over ourselves, our ideas of what constitutes the self, of where we end, and someone or something else begins. So it seems to me that's a perfect lead-in to what you've been doing with Acer. And developing those connections and helping people to get to that understanding that where we think we end and everything else begins is a very fluid place and up to a point open to our choice. So tell us a little bit about what Acer is, how it works, what its outcomes are, and particularly how you came to create it.
1: So Acer, yes, it's Accept, Connect, Embody, Restore. And it's also a type of tree and the it's really focusing around when somebody's had an experience that has opened them up to the new way. So it, it doesn't have to be psychedelics, although most people in the community have had a psychedelic experience, whether on a retreat or at home or in trial, but some people have had other experiences because of deep grief or because of a spiritual awakening that have all opened them up to seeing the system that we live in in a new way, understanding the way the system perpetuates disconnection and understanding that there is a different way of being, which is more relational and more connected and more joyful. Mm-hmm. And they want to be part of that, that new way. So it's really a community for nurturing people that, to become agents of connectedness, and that's in their own worlds in their own lives but also in their communities and in their the ecosystems that they're part of so it's it's very much about a, a process a journey that we take together there's a framework that we go through and we go through that referring to our own lives and our own past and our own current context and what we want to change so it is a personal journey and we can do work to change the way we live and change the way we relate and then Beyond that, it's this connect community where there's lots and lots of um, small group work, larger group work, getting to know each other, deeply bonding with people, and then also connecting to nature too. So it's this, it is a personal journey, but from that, we we want people to develop, um, yeah, community connection.
0: And it's mostly online or is there a lot of in-person work and in going out and, and camping in the countryside and and talking to trees?
1: So the first the first year, which is what people join for, is all online, and it, the nature connection happens through that online platform. Which I, I can talk about the framework in a sec, but it's all online. But the idea is that when people have finished that first year, so they go. The framework is called the Twelve Trees, and every month we focus on a different tree, and each tree has a different lesson around connection to self others and the wider world the living world and when people have been through the 12 trees we then hope that everybody then becomes part of this larger kind of community this kind of holding space where everyone that's been through it will will then continue to grow like a forest of of people and we hope that people will start all sorts of projects of their own based around the work they've been doing and the connections they've formed in the community but also people can become space holders for new people that join the community because part of the, the, the core the core work is sharing circles. We have lots of sharing circles and they're facilitated by people who've been through the 12 trees themselves. And so when people then finish, they can then become sharing circle facilitators and we provide training and support for people and we pay people to then become space holders for other people that, that come through. And the sharing mm-hmm. circles can be very moving spaces where people can really take off the mask and really be authentic and express how they're doing, how they're feeling with other people that are really able to also sit in that place of vulnerability too. So that's another way. But then the third way is that, and the, probably the thing I'm most passionate about and this is my focus now, because we have just finished making all the materials for the first, for the 12 trees, is that when people finish... We want to support people with a kind of package so that they can then go into their local community and with this package of materials that we will provide for free to say, go into your community and seed something based around maybe a couple of the tree meditations that we do. So we do a tree meditation, a tree journey every month together. And that's where you you walk up to one of the trees, whichever one we're connecting with that month, and with this kind of bespoke, um, deep journey with music that's specially composed and created for the tree and a narrative that is open enough for people to have their own experience with it, people connect to this particular kind of tree. They see a tree, they hear the lessons from that tree, they in- interpret that into their own lives. And rather than just having a cognitive experience of, oh, well, the Hawthorne tree for June is about forgiveness. What do I need to forgive in myself and others? it's a deeper, more embodied visceral experience of really feeling the upswell of emotion linked to this theme of forgiveness and how it lives in your body. So it's the accept, connect, embody version of Hmm. a topic. It's, It's using the messages from psychedelics to help people engage with kind of psychological constructs in a much deeper way. So then... So when people have had those experiences, we, we all 12 of them from the 12 trees, we would like people to be able to offer them to their local communities. So to say, for example, um, so I hope to be starting up one in Froome, which is a community in Somerset, which has loads of potential for community offerings. And what I'm going to do is, and I haven't planned the logistics yet, but I'm going to start very small and find a town hall that I can hire and say, right, right you know, four times a year for winter, spring, summer, and autumn. We'll do a tree journey. I'll offer it for free. Anyone in the community, you don't have to ever have tried psychedelics, but just Hmm. to be living here, come be in circle. We're going to do a tree journey together and have a sharing circle afterwards about what it brings up just to start planting those little seeds. So, and that's something anyone can do. They can hire a local hall, they can charge people like one or two pounds to come to cover the hire of the hall, and then they can offer this gift of a meditation and just see what comes from that. So it's we hope to plant lots of little little seeds from the Acer Forest so that this idea of connecting to trees and connecting to their lessons can spread out and people can benefit because trees are the most incredible healing allies, Mm. allies of support and healing and wisdom and deep roots and learning and strength. So I think trees are our best friends right now.
0: Yeah. And the mycelial networks that connect them all together are huge and spreading and deeply, deeply connected. So many questions on this. How did you come to each of the 12 trees, because there's a lot more than 12 possible. And how did you find the theme? So Hawthorne is for June and the theme is forgiveness. How did you, Roz, come to develop this?
1: So when COVID came in March 2020, uh, we were just finishing our clinical trial, second psilocybin for depression trial. And then COVID brought in some disruption to that. So I suddenly found myself um, without a job because the trial ended and things were, yeah, unexpectedly ended. So it was the middle of a pandemic and it was a very difficult time. Um, And I was, yeah, very how how to put it diplomatically, I was quite, um, I was, I was, I was in a state of shock because I suppose when a pandemic starts, teams don't necessarily manage that, that well, because they might not have been prepared for how that would be. So we didn't have a plan right. in place for what would happen when, when COVID, you know, when a pandemic hit. Right. And so we didn't really have a plan. So it was a very, very difficult ending. And, I had this one day where the enormity of that really hit me and the enormity of the fact that I was now out of work and I was the the mm. the sole breadwinner for for the family and for my daughter was there and her dad was unable to work and and we were we had to leave our houseboat and go and rent um rent somewhere because the houseboat was going to be a bit difficult in covid so we we were in the countryside renting A place with other people. It was a friend of mine's place. Uh, Actually, my co collaborator, Sam Gandhi, it was his family's place. It's kind of a a nature reserve in the countryside. And I went from being in London for a long time on a very cramped boat to being in this big open space and being in nature. And I'd been spending a lot of time with trees and outside with bare feet just because I'd been in such burnout at the end of the trial. So just soothing my nervous system and coming back to the land after a long time of working 12 hour days and, you know, eating crisps instead of meals, just, you know, at the end of the trial, it was just, you know, crisps and a Mars bar would be my evening meal. And (sighs) I was just kind of completely, totally burnt out and fried from how hard we were all working without any resting. So I was, my system was in burnout um i was in nature and i had this experience of kind of deep sadness about the way the the, the way the trial ended and i ra- there was just this one time when i was just so sad about it and so shocked by how it all unfolded that i ran down the garden just in floods of tears like absolutely beside myself i think it was just the stress of the time as well it was a very difficult time yeah you know, the beginning of COVID, everybody, we were all panicking yeah. and no one knew what was going on. And it was just extreme. Yeah. And I found, I fell on a tree that was a field maple. So actually an Acer tree. And I just fell onto this tree and I cried and I cried and I cried and I felt like the tree was just holding me and I couldn't be anywhere else. I just wanted to be with this particular tree. And and felt the cooling of the earth, and the deep roots, and the wisdom, and the fact that these trees, this tree had lots of holes where branches had been lost, and it was gnarly, and imperfect, but had lived through storms, and just this feeling of, you will get through this time, and there is a wisdom in losing a limb. You can lose a limb, like a tree loses a branch, and have a big gash, and a hole, and that can be that can be where the light gets in, you know, the crack is where the light right. gets in. This can be your yeah. the sacred wound. So right. it was the developing of that, I think. And from there, I started reading about trees and about tree communication and about tree healing. And I read this amazing book by somebody called Ian Siddons Heggenworth about the Celtic tree calendar. And he does environmental arts therapy and he was writing down, um, writing chapters based on different trees aligned to this idea of the Celtic tree calendar. So I took that as my starting point, as my inspiration. And I then went through a year of my own process of writing a program for people integrating psychedelic experiences because at the same time we had the people that had been in the trial that now had no aftercare because it was covid they'd had a psilocybin experience and they had no support afterwards so i set up an integration community for people after the trial that then developed into asa and some of the people from that trial are now the sharing circle facilitators within asa because they've been through many years
0: brilliant brilliant so that was one of my questions was how long has it been going on so you've just answered that so the next question was when is the next intake because it's it, you must be doing this year on year not just as a rolling thing of join whenever you like and you're on the latest tree
1: so we we had the idea is to have kind of probably four kind of gate points for the four seasons when people will join we've had two cohorts join so far the next one is going to be starting in october but we are actually just open. So people actually can apply whenever there's a, on the, on the website, they can join them the mailing list and they can apply. And it's in preparation for the next opening of the gate, which will be um, in October. But yeah, people are starting to apply now.
0: Brilliant. Okay. And I have definitely put a link in the show notes. So anyone who's interested, which I hope is everybody listening, there is a link in the show notes and you can go along. This just sounds so generative and so much what we need because All of us are watching the crumbling of the old system, diving off a cliff, and hoping that a generative new system evolves to meet it as it falls down so that there isn't a great big trough in which millions of people are destitute and that we can build the communities that we need. And if I've understood this is online, you're building communities that I would say are of purpose and of passion, not necessarily of place, so that then people can go and build the communities of place. In their local environments, and and have all three. It sounds, it sounds so generative and so lovely.
1: Thank you, Man. And I, I should just say one thing about it as well, if it's okay. Um, yep. That we charge people. We 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 require people to pay.
0: Of course, we still live in predatory capitalism. You have to charge.
1: We do, and, and one of the things is that I haven't taken any venture capital funding. So I, I've started the whole thing on a personal loan. Wow. So that means that the 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 amount that we would like to charge per month is not the amount that we have to charge right now. So a lot of a lot of the time people look at it and say oh, I really want to do this, but I can't afford it and it's it's one of those things where I think in time when more people do it the price will come down, but in order right. to support the development of it we just require that people can see the importance of it and if they can you know we try and be flexible somewhat but unfortunately yeah it's because I didn't want to take a venture capital route that it is has to be what it is
0: yeah yes because otherwise you you end up dancing to the tune of the vultures it's just that's that's the way it is and people still have to eat and pay the mortgage and heat their homes and all of those things and the money is flooding up to the top but one day we'll create the new system with the new sovereign currency and and the new ways of exchange. And then then it won't be flooding to the top. But in the meantime, this feels to me like a really, really valuable and important thing to do.
1: Thank you. Given
0: the time, we're way over the hour. Is there anything you wanted to say as a last thought to people listening? I think we've got that community and connection are important. If you're going to take psychedelics, take them within a very, very, cleanly carefully and compassionately held space anything else
1: no i think that covers it well thank you manda
0: okay well in that case thank you very very much for all that you're doing and all that you are and for giving us the time to come on the podcast it's been a delight
1: no i've really enjoyed it and i'm a massive fan of the podcast so it's been a real pleasure thank you
0: manda yay thank you and that's it for another week Huge thanks to Roz for her time, her dedication, her insight, her understanding that plant spirits are so, so much more than a tablet of psilocybin that we can take to kick us out of depression. Her capacity to integrate her clinical training with what feels to me like a really connected sense of belonging to the web of life feels huge. And definitely, if you're interested in this at all, I have put links to Acer in the show notes. Head off there and join in what she's doing. Have a read also of her Medium post, which I have linked as well, and the Double Blind paper by Alnur Lada and René Sousa. All of these feel really important to us shifting from being part of the old paradigm to leading the way towards the new one. And if this podcast is about anything at all, it's about this. We need to be part of the newness. We need to let go of everything that we can, of the old ways of being. And people like Roz, Alnur, René Souza are all leading the way. So there we go. That's your homework for this week. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, huge thanks to Alan Lowles of Airtight Studios in Manchester for the production, to Caro C for the music at the Head and Foot, to Faith Tillerae for the website and the conversations that keep us moving, to Jill Coombs for the transcripts, and, as ever, to you for listening. I am continually reminded that five stars in a review on the podcast app of your choice is what gets us in front of other people. So with some reluctance, I am saying this because I still think that word of mouth is the best way forward, but I am not an algorithm. So there we go. Having said all of that, if you know of anybody else who wants to be part of the way that the world could be, who wants to understand the depth and complexity and the radical simplicity of simply connecting to our communities of place and of purpose, and of passion, then please do send them this link. And that is it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.